Hi everybody. Before we start the episode, this is a quick technical note for people who listen to the podcast on an application called Stitcher. So of course, if you're listening to this, you know there are a lot of different podcast distribution apps floating around out there. The big ones being Apple, Google, places like that. But a lot of people listen to the show on an application called Stitcher. It turns out you may or may not have gotten the notification, but the Stitcher application is going to disappear on August 29th, 2023. It's going to go away, right? So if you depend on Stitcher to listen to the Climate Minute, you want to start making plans now. If you listen to the Climate Minute on any other application, any other application, you're good to go. No worries. Uh, that's because, well, it's convoluted, but we post the show to a place called, a website called Podbean, and that Podbean distributes it to the podcast to Apple, which then funnels off and everyone else, all the other applications receive the podcast from Apple. Therefore, if you're not, if you don't use Stitcher, no worries. If you do use Stitcher, you need to get a different application. Uh, I'll put up a link to the frequently asked questions file from the Stitcher people. And there you go. Stitcher seems to be pushing an, uh, the application called Pandora, which is a music streaming app. Uh, we have recently posted the Climate Minute to Pandora. So if you take your advi- their advice, you can go there and maybe that becomes your new app. I've also personally moved over to something called Good Pods. We'll see how that works for us. For my own personal listening, uh, it turns out that within Stitcher, if you're in Stitcher, you can download a list of all the shows you like and that you listen to, and you might be able to import those to the new application that you choose. Anyway, um, there you go. Just a heads up. If you listen to the show on Stitcher, you need to find a new app. If you listen to the show on anything else, you don't need to listen to this this because you're fine. Okay? So, good luck. Oh, by the way, if you have an application you like and want can't find the, the Climate Minute there, send us an email, podcast at massclimateaction.net, and we'll do our level best to get the show on that app as well. Okay? There you go. You heard it here first. Hi, and welcome to the Climate Minute, your source for insight and perspective on global warming news. My name is Mariah Tinger, and I'm pleased to be joined by a special guest on the show, William Sargent. William Sargent writes prolifically about science and the environment and is a noble consultant and recipient of many awards, including Boston Globe's Winship Award. In his repertoire of 28 published books, readers will delight in the details of horseshoe crab bloodletting research, climate-influenced coastal changes, bioterrorism, and the connections between COVID, the war in Ukraine, and climate change. 
A fun fact, William is the son of a former Massachusetts governor and a relation of the artist John Singer Sargent. Welcome, William. Thank you very much for that introduction. It, it sounds like my mother wrote it. <laughs> you, know, you have lots <laughs> to be proud of. So, um, But yes, I'm, I'm thrilled to have you joining us to speak uh, for this episode of the Climate Minute. Um, do you go by William or Bill? Uh, Bill is fine. All right, great. Um, well, welcome, Bill. You you know the uh, line from the movie Stripes. My real name is Francis. You call me Francis, I'll kill you. <laughs> <laughs> Noted. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I love it. Um, so before we get started, uh, my co-host, Ted, usually opens with the days until 2030 and the parts per million of carbon dioxide in the air. So in keeping with tradition... There are 2,331 days until 2030, notable because 2030 is the decade where we will hit many tipping points. And the parts per million of carbon dioxide in the air are 419 parts per million, nearly 70 parts per million above the 350 parts per million that scientists deem as the uppermost safe limit for atmospheric carbon dioxide. Fortunately, we have we have Bill Sargent here to deliver some hopeful news about climate progress. So, Bill, in a few minutes, I'd like to talk to, about your newest book, Backstory, Journalists Off the Record. But before we dis- discuss your work, can you tell me a little bit about your backstory? Um, you have politics well, in your... Oh, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> yes. Uh, you were going to say I had politics in my background. That was very, very far in my background. Um, I was, uh, you know, I was one of those kids who who never outgrew his bug stage. Um, I grew up on in the summers on the Cape, and I spent all my. I was sort of a a happy heathen. I spent would spend all day, you know, in a boat drifting around, looking at horseshoe crabs and catching uh, clams and blue crabs and fishing and and just having a having a wonderful time with nature. Um, I was also interested in writing, um, and I, I kind of think the two things go together. There are a lot of uh, very good uh, natural history writers um, that both have this biophilia, this love of nature, as well as a love of writing, and it and it comes through in in their writing. Uh, so I think I'm I'm sort of fortunate that I that I had all of that. Um, then when I went to high school. Uh, I couldn't wait to get my hand on the big microscopes. I always used to have my own little microscope and I would collect my samples and check them out. But I couldn't wait to get my hands on the really big microscopes. Uh, But it turns out the biology teacher was uh, the football coach. And all he wanted to do was sort of make men out of us or give us a hard time. And uh, so it it turned me off. Uh, to, you know, to science and biology. Uh, so when I went to college, um, the only thing I could think of was, you know, going into government. Uh, and very quickly, I, I realized that wasn't for me. And I had to really, you know, strap down and, and uh, go after biology, which was my, was my true love. I wasn't a very good science, uh, very good student. I was, uh, I was one of those, uh, sort of a, a lantern uh, learner. They talk now about lantern le- learners and spotlight learners. The lantern 
learners take a lot of different courses that are kind of fascinating to them. Uh, and they don't have that that laser focus that uh, you need, you know, if you're going to go into medicine or law or something like that. But it was wonderful if you're going into writing because you had all these kind of little uh, interesting different bits of knowledge. And I find that I use the courses that I that I took in uh, as an undergraduate almost every day. I took, you know, rocks for jocks. This was our geology class. Uh, and I partially took it because it was a gut, but it was one of the best courses I've ever had. And I took an invertebrate zoology course, and I absolutely love that. They no longer give it uh, in a lot of colleges now because people are studying cells and, and neurons, and they don't care what animal they're looking at. They're, they're looking in at, at these details. Um, but I actually wrote a book about how various animals are used in, in modern medicine uh, for, for research on, on uh, various aspects, aspects of modern medicine. Is that your Crab Wars book? Uh, no, I actually wrote one called The Year of the Crab, Marine Mammals, uh, Marine Animals in Modern Medicine. Ah, wow. Okay. It's, it, yes, it's, it's out of print now. But I've had a lot of grad students that tell me that, you know, they keep it in their backpack all the time when they're in the field. And so that, that makes me that makes me feel very good. That's um, that, you know, I sort of my big awakening came when um, I took the year off. I had a job as a research assistant in at Woods Hole and I was on a cruise to Africa and South America and up into the Baltic. And my job was to collect uh, plankton every day at midnight and at uh, at noon. And often we would take surface toes um, and, you know, the nets would come up covered with oil. There'd be big tar balls and there'd be this sheen of oil. And I realized, you know, the entire Atlantic Ocean, all the oceans of the world were covered with oil then because of um, oil coming out of, of ships. Um, that since then, um, they have made some regulations and that's, that's, uh, no longer a problem or it's less of a problem. But that was a real awakening for me. And then when I went back to college, I was actually sitting beside Al Gore when Roger Revelle, uh, presented the first graph of carbon dioxide. You know, that, that sort of, uh, sawtoothed, uh, graph that shows the, carbon dioxide going up. And that absolutely, you know, scared the wee out of me um, because you knew that if you had uh, carbon dioxide going up like that, you were going to have the greenhouse effect and you, then you were going to have sea level rise and melting glaciers and higher methane and all the tipping points that we're actually starting to see now, we realized then. And, um, and we, you know, we all thought that now that the scientists know about it, by the time we get out of college, um, the politicians will have solved the problem. Um, of course, that was 40 years ago. And what have we done? Absolutely nothing up until actually the Biden administration. Um, and um, I'm actually, you know, it's not very fashionable to say that you're uh, that you're very enthusiastic about about Joe Biden. You know, he's he's not the most Supposedly, he's not the most charismatic fellow, but I'm, I like to have a good, competent, 
not necessarily charismatic guy. Um, and he's doing more for the environment than anybody has ever done other than perhaps Teddy Roosevelt. Yeah. Okay. So this I, is all... I, I, I must, I must say I'm, I'm still kind of skeptical. I'm not sure that we can build our way out of, out of this environmental crisis. Uh, but I'm willing to give it a try. Um, and he's, he's going at it in a, in a, in a major way. Right. Uh, certainly, you know, with the Inflation Reduction Act and many of these things that you cover in your book, um, I, I wonder, um, it's it's heartening. Do you think that it's enough? No, I don't think it's enough. Uh, and I think we're going to have to make a lot of corrections. Um but again, you know, at least we're 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 trying and we're starting and and uh, you know, I think the big game changer obviously is is uh, fusion energy, uh, nuclear fusion, and now I think they have had three experiments where they've produced more energy than they had to put in. Um, so that that's the big milestone that 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 everybody's been waiting for. Um, so I think things might happen relatively quickly, and um, that that would be absolutely major. Yeah, and just by way of some background, there's there's nuclear fission and there's nuclear fusion, and nuclear fission is the one that has there's a lot of opposition toward nuclear fission, um, but also a lot of support for it. But it's the one that can create the sort of you know. Chernobyl meltdown, kind of like those those big problematic um, right. meltdowns if the reactors go out of out of control. Um, nuclear fusion, on the other hand, is the nuclear energy where you're fusing um, hydrogen atoms and you end up with water. I think is the byproduct, right? Um, exactly. exactly. Yeah. And the other thing, it's kind of a I'd hate to use the word fail safe, <laughs> but if if something goes wrong and the the uh, the reaction stops, everything shuts down automatically. Um, so it it's uh, um, you know it, it, it it's as, probably as safe as almost any major energy source. Right, but the problem up till now has been that there's the activation energy was so was far higher than the energy it was able to produce so you're pumping a lot more fossil fuels into it than you're actually exactly. getting energy out of it but the the technology has come so far and you touch on this in your book backstory and it's a really you know fun and in compelling ways um with the different sort of technologies that are out there and some of the um interviewees the Reporters are interviewing some folks who have a little bit more background knowledge about that. Yeah. And we, you know, I, I look at the um, uh, ITER uh, project, which is in southern France. And, you know, I have them sipping wine and, and eating this wonderful, right. uh, you know, fuite de mer uh, as they're talking about it. And it is kind of weird to me that they're building this huge complex. I think there's 35 countries that are putting money into uh, this project. And because it's so big, um, they're having all kinds of problems with it and it's it's way behind schedule. Uh, so I compare that with um, a couple of the projects. Uh, you know, I would like to, to think that our, you know, our own backyard boys at, at MIT, uh, you know, are, are going to win the race. 
but uh, and and they have some funding and they they've made some progress. But I think what's going on on the West Coast now at the Livermore Lab and there's a there's another uh, private organization called Helium uh, Helium that um, uh, that has you know a lot of funding and and they seem to be moving ahead quickly. So you know somebody's going to figure it out um, and and hopefully just in time. Yeah, it's a huge, I mean, it's huge. I think forever, sort of the tagline with nuclear fusion has been, well, that's 30 de- thirty years down the road, right? And they've been yes. saying that for 40 years now. And now here we are at a place where people can actually see the potential, it, the, the light's there at the end of the tunnel, right? It's it, there. It might actually be 30 years now. <laughs> uh, hopefully, hopefully it's 15 years. Right. <laughs> yep. Yep. Um, but you talk a lot about so let's let's turn now to your to your book um, backstory yep. journalists off the record um, because there's a lot of really exciting things that you talk about in your book that can happen tomorrow and are happening today and I think that was one of the things that you know I was the most enthusiastic about when reading your book um, so but real quickly um, what uh, you know most of your books are nonfiction but backstory journalists off the record is fiction so why fiction. Well, I actually, um, I had been writing uh, during COVID. I wrote um, uh, World on Edge. I wish I'd called it Earth on Edge, but unfortunately, I called it World on Edge. Uh, I like Earth on Edge much better. Um, Alliteration. <laughs> but, um, and it was a nonfiction book, and it looked at, you know, the situation that we're in. Uh, and it was at a time that was very gloom and doomy, um, you know. Uh, the war in Ukraine was was just getting started. Uh, Russians had captured Chernobyl and Zarapitsi. Zarap, I don't. I'm not pronouncing it right. Uh, the other uh, the other nuclear power plant, and they were also they wanted to move very quickly into Kiev. Uh, and what they were after was uh, a biological warfare uh, plant. That actually, this you know, under the Soviet Union, this has been one of their biggest um, uh, biological warfare uh, units. Um, and after the, the Soviet Union collapsed, the United States was actually paying some scientists so they wouldn't, uh, you know, uh, have to work for rogue nations. Um, so, you know, that was that was one of the things that the Russians were after. Yeah, and you, you know. You go ahead. That's fine. <laughs> yeah, I, I think in <laughs> in World on Edge, which you know this. So for the background for our readers, um, Bill wrote World on Edge. He pretty much finished it the same month that he started Backstory. So you know, absolutely. <laughs> and 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 what I realized, you know, again, it was such a. A, it was a little bit of a doom and gloomy book because that's what we were that's what we were dealing with. But nobody wanted to read about uh, doom and gloom, and frankly, I was sick and sick of writing about it. Um, and I realized that that really the way to tell the story was to write a nice personable story about three journalists that interact, and and journalists are fun. Um, you know, and they're covering the biggest story of our lives. You know, they're, we're, we're covering the potential deterioration of our planet. Uh, and, 
They're all involved with this. And there's a lot of banter in, in newsrooms. Um, actually, this idea came up. Um, the Sloan Foundation wanted to do for science what ER had done for medicine. And so they had a little grant, a grant application. And I wrote it up. And they sent me $500. And it was the idea of having a, a series of science writers going out and covering um, these different topics. Uh, and um, they ended up uh, sort of doing some of the uh, forensic shows. Uh, but I always thought that this was kind of a neat idea. So I, that, uh, it, it just fit together. I mean, it was, you know, let, let me first say that the the backstory is an absolutely delightful read. Um when I finished it, I was enthusiastic about the possibilities that are available to avert the most catastrophic effects of climate change. Uh, and it's also just, it's a a playful book, but also immensely informative. Um, so I, you know, I, I really enjoyed it. Um, and I, I, I have a, a, one of my friends said it was oddly optimistic. <laughs> yes. And I, I, I'll take that. <laughs> it is, it is. I mean, um, you know, just so, so the, the narrative for backstory follows a collection of journalists, Erica, Sylvia, Sylvia and Gregor, and also their um, editor, Finn Barr, comes in there every once in a while. But it's a besides, behind-the-scenes look at how these uh, reporters chase stories and what they learn along the way. Um, and then the reader gets to follow them lockstep through these adventures that they have as journalists and the tough decisions they have to make when they're trying to report on these major events. Um, there's a, an episode in the story in the in backstory where, you know, they're they're talking about um, reporting on a wildfire. And 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 the reporter says her friend is sort of questioning her about things and, you know, oh, so you're going to report on this wildfire. And she says, no, everyone's going to be reporting on the wildfire. Uh, or sorry, maybe it was a flood. I might have that incorrect. It might have been a flood. But anyway, she says, I'm not going to report on the um, on the flood. Uh, I'm going to report on this other smaller story that I think is a little bit more interesting and will capture you know, it, it won't be reported on as much. Um, so you, right. you have these little sort of journalistic decisions that that I can imagine truly do happen. Absolutely. You know, I, I find one of the most frightening stories right now, uh, you probably saw uh, that yesterday, uh, a 20 year old kid caught a tarpon off of Cape Cod. And a tarpon is sort of the quintessential game fish of the south of the deep south you find them around florida and somehow this is a large fish that was probably about five feet long and you know it has come up here because the the waters are so hot you know off of florida they're over 100 degrees uh and so uh either that water is spreading all the way north to cape cod or even more frightening, he's trying to get away from that hot water. <laughs> yeah. uh, and so that would, to me, that's the kind of story uh, that is that is intriguing, uh, but it, it's an indication of a much bigger story. Um, and everybody's kind of heard the bigger story, and it's sort of, uh, you know, it's a cliche by now that the you know, the water is heating up and that the Gulf Stream may stop flowing. Uh, but this is a nice little handle uh, where you've got this kid catching a huge fish that shouldn't be there. 
Yeah, it's a captive. It's a captures your attention real quickly, and because it's local too, right? Right. Um, right. Well, so do you feel comfortable reading a couple passages from your from backstory? I I would be much more comfortable if you read. Them. I am happy to read them too. <laughs> um, so let let me let's let's take a look at some of these. This the first one I wanted to talk about is is one that you know is kind of about the doom and gloom, um, but it it deals with it in such a fun way that uh, you know it's it, it's just you know the pithy dialogue really moves the story along. Um, so. Um, this is on page 31 of the story. And one of the reporters, Erica is in Hermit's Peak, New Mexico in May of 2022. She's discussing the wind driven fire that occurred there with Paolo, the head of the environmental institution at Northern Arizona university. And so as Erica is sweeping burning, burning embers off her rental car, she has a discussion with Paula about the precursors to the wildfire. So let me um, let me read this passage on page 31. She, Erica says to Paolo, so you think this prolonged drought is unprecedented? And Paolo responds, unprecedented, catastrophic, apocalyptic, worst drought in 1,200 years. You're the wordsmith. Take your pick. Erica says, and you think this drastic climate change has all happened in just the past 10 years? Powell responds with, of course, it has been building ever since the Industrial Revolution, but now we seem to have raced past several tipping points. It's estimated that by 2030, the world will be experiencing over 500 climate-related disasters every year. Erica responds with, oh, great. That means I'll have to write two doom and gloom stories every day. <laughs> that was me talking. <laughs> yes, I mean, and you know, and I think that that's not a far stretch for the journalists who who you know, it is. It's exhausting and you don't feel effective when you're reporting on these doom and gloom stories. Um and you know, Absolutely. It, that's that comes through so beautifully in the way that you sort of set up that passage. Um And and I like it how it it brings it down to the personal level because yeah. uh you know, everybody looks at at everything through their own personal lens. And all of a sudden she realizes, you know, her life is going to be much harder. <laughs> right. And, you know, and it's funny because it's it, this sharp contrast to the fact, yes, her life is going to be harder because she's writing doom and gloom stories. But we're talking about tipping points and 500, you know, climate related disasters every year. Like that's going to be the least of her worries is her doing close right. stories, you know? um, exactly but, yeah um but uh, you know you're so you're you're giving us the information we need right there i mean that's what's really fun about this book is that there's a lot of really important it's jam-packed with critical information um but you deliver it in this sort of l- intriguing light-hearted way without bringing you down too much um but yes, I mean those those tipping points in 2030 are real. Yeah, and I'll, I'll tell you another tipping point that I'm looking at very carefully, and that is uh, the tides. Are, the tides are on a 30 year cycle, and it has to do with how close the moon is to the Earth and the Earth is to the sun, and and uh, what part of their um, of their orbit they're in. Um, but uh, so by the mid uh, 2030s, around here, the tides are going to be about four. Normally now we get about a nine foot tide. 
And uh, by the mid-30s, they're going to be 13, even 14 feet. Um, so you're going to have an extra, you know, three or four feet. Uh, and you put that on top of, say, a 15-foot wave uh, and a three-foot storm surge, uh, and you're going to wipe out, you know, you're going to wipe out all kinds of houses on barrier beaches. And what you're also going to do is you're going to wipe out the barrier beaches themselves because they'll lose their their integrity. Once you get more than three feet of sea level rise over 100 years, uh, that's too fast for the barrier beaches to be able to to repair themselves. What they do is they they migrate, they roll over themselves uh, as the sea level is getting higher. If it gets too high, too fast, they're not able to do that. And you open up inlets in, in the barrier beaches, and then things quickly, quickly disintegrate from there. Yeah, and I can't remember if I read this in World on Edge or Backstory, but you write about an island um, that, let's see, it was an island that didn't have a bridge to it and didn't have anything on the island. And it it performed exactly as it needed to as as a barrier island protecting um the the bay i'm sorry that i don't have more information about that but i remember reading I that think, and i think that was in the carolinas i believe yeah yes yes yep and so yeah. you know th- there are places where you know these islands are doing their job but without them what you know everyone's developing the coasts everybody wants to live right next yeah. to the beach and it's causing huge problems yeah and of course, I think um, I also talk about the idea that we should really have a national policy to retreat from the barrier beaches. And if we do that, what you're doing is you're creating a wildlife corridor. Uh, it's already, you know, you have all kinds of birds and fish, of course, offshore that are migrating along that corridor. Uh, and if you gradually put some of that land into national seashores and into wildlife refuges, and most most of the barrier beaches are adjacent uh, to some kind of federal or, or state public land, um, so it, it, you know it wouldn't be that difficult to to start doing that. Um, and then you're you're solving two things at once: you're you're saving people from losing their houses and you know, losing their livelihood uh, when they do lose their house. Uh, and you're also creating this wildlife corridor. Um, it, this was something that E.O. Wilson was writing about, uh, you know, saving half of the earth for uh, for animals and plants. So you'd save the diversity of the planet. So I'd like to call this the E.O. Wilson uh, wildlife corridor. Yeah. Yeah. And he, he talks, he has a... a- his organization has created a whole, there's a half earth project, right? That right. is, there's a lot of information about that on the internet. We could put that into the show, into the show notes as well. Um, yeah. yeah. And I, you know, I think the Cape Ann national seashore, right. Is an example of, you know, they've done some protecting of that land, but also it has brought a lot of tourists in. So it's not an economic loss necessarily. It, it's actually a, a gain. Yes. Yeah. 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 And actually, there's a very good example of that up here on the North Shore. Uh, you have the trustees of reservations that operates uh, Crane's Beach, uh, and they have a huge parking lot, um, and there are thousands and thousands of people, and I forget they're spending maybe 35 bucks a day 
you know, to park and use the beach, um, as opposed to Plum Island, which is a little bit north of there, that has very little parking. Um, and but it's it's got all these houses. And so the communities have to pay, you know, when the houses wash away, they have to pay for trying to preserve them. They have to pay for rescuing people, you know, in, in storms. Uh, so it's a, it's a net loss. They're actually spend they're right about now they have passed the point where they're spending more than they're getting from tax income. Uh, as opposed to a place like Crane's Beach, where there are no houses. They, they removed all the houses in the early sixties. Um, there were a few, there were a few farms out there on the barrier beach. And when they took over, uh, they got rid of the farms and they built this, um, uh, you know, parking lot. And so they're, they have a, a large amount of income. And it's, I think it's one of the most beautiful beaches in New England. It, you know, it has actually been. Uh, I shouldn't say that. I shouldn't say that. I don't want people. Usually, when I write about the North Shore, I write about the, you know, the ticks and the mosquitoes and the greenheads to keep everybody away. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Yeah. So you you won't like what I'm about to say, was which is that it actually Crane's Beach got nominated as one of the. I think it's like the the sixth best beach in the nation for families. So nationally, uh, it got a okay. recognition. And it's way, way down the list for for nude beaches. <laughs> this is true. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. It takes over the family area much better. <laughs> um, yeah. So, um, but but it does have green heads. That is true. Yep. Yeah. Uh, uh, um. So, um, let, let's look at a different another passage. Um, that I I found entertaining in backstory. Um. This was the and actually the next two passages I want to talk about are, are climate solutions, which I think that's what makes it um what what was your friend called it awkwardly optimistic or surprisingly surprising? uh, oddly optimistic. Uh, oddly, yes, yeah. That's what makes it oddly optimistic is there's these amazing um solutions that are presented. So uh let's turn first to the um on page 64. There is a, a reporter, Sylvia, is in Shanghai, and she's talking to ferry captain Liu and Yu Kongjian, Kongjian, who is an urban designer that studied at Harvard's Graduate School of Education. And the passage um, goes like this. Um, captain Liu, who's the old friend of Yu Kongjian, Kongjian is saying, Kongjian has designed 30 sponge cities that retain up to 70% of their rainfall. Beijing's goal is to have 100 such cities by 2030. That will affect over a million people. Sylvia responds with, very impressive, but tell me about your experiences during the Cultural Revolution. Captain Liu says, I hated it, but Kongjian loved it. Kongjian responds with, yes, I lived on a communal farm in the Zhejiang province during the Mao years. I spent all day observing peasant wisdom. You see, for thousands of years, Chinese farmers would build small ponds and berms so rainfall would infiltrate the soil and be saved for dry days. I watched the creek next to our village swell and retreat with the seasons. Sylvia says, we're also having terrible flooding back at home in the United States. 
Kongjian responds with, but you see, for me, floods were a time of great excitement because fish come into the fields and into ponds. But as China urbanized, we abandoned that knowledge in favor of your Western path. Now we must regain that knowledge and become friends with flooding once again. So I, I liked that, um, you know, the, the idea of we need to embrace nature's natural processes, similar to these barrier barrier island ideas. And I, I wondered if you could tell us a little bit more about the sponge cities and that whole idea. Yeah. And first, I, I want to say that that he's an actual guy. Uh, and, um, you know, for a long time, he was, you know, the, the Communist Party officials uh, thought he was an American spy because he had gone to the Harvard Design School and, you know, had, you know, all this Western training. Uh, but now he's regarded as, you know, he's a real leader um, and he's designed over 70 of these sponge cities. And what what they do is uh, along the riverbanks, uh, he creates parks and sometimes he'll have a wastewater facility and then he'll make an elaborate park that will, uh, for instance, it, it's sort of a living museum that will show you the agricultural uh, past of the area. So uh, in the spring, you might have um, uh, poppies blooming. Uh, and then you'll have something else blooming and then you'll have rice blooming, uh, you know, in the in the fall. Uh, so kids can go and they can see part of their agricultural past. But this is also an area when you get flooding, uh, water will go into that area and it will act like a sponge and protect the city uh until the the waters recede and then it you know it flows back into the back into the river um so we're starting to do that um in new orleans um we're we're building a big area now where they're diverting the river uh so sediment can flow in and um and create new land uh and of course they've done this sort of thing in the in the netherlands as well but i thought what was it, what was entering interesting about that is his experience in the in the cultural revolution we think of it as being all bad uh but you know humans have a they're very resilient and uh he got a lot out of it he was a fascinating guy the other fascinating guy um that i've come in contact with was, was a guy called ken alabeck uh, and he was a medical student in the in the Soviet Union, um, and I, he did a paper about uh, a, a battle, and he realized that somehow they had to be using biological uh, agents um, because first the Russian troops, first the the German troops were were being affected, and then the Russian troops were being affected. And he mentioned this to his professor, uh, and he said, uh, "You're absolutely right. Never say that again in your life." <laughs> and anyway, he he became so, and he was a very idealistic guy who, you know, wanted to go into medicine to help humanity. Uh, but he became fascinated with this, and he thought that the United States had a huge biological warfare program. It was only when uh, he came to the United States on some inspection uh, visits that he realized, no, that in fact, we had we had shut down our program. 
Um, and uh, so anyway, I um, I thought, he, and he defected, and uh, he was in the United States. And I thought, well, gee, it would be fascinating to talk to him. And I figured, well, if I wrote a letter, you know, it would maybe take me two or three years, and I'd go through all kinds of red tape of the CIA and everything like that. Finally, I just said, well, I'll make a cold call. And so I, you know, I, I got his telephone number and I called him up and, and he said, hi, this is Ken Alabeck. And we became great friends. And, you know, it was always Ken and Bill. And, you know, we went back and forth. He was a very engaging guy. Um, and so, you know, he had he was also a guy who had uh, this sort of human resilience uh, under an oppressive regime. Uh, that you wouldn't expect. You wouldn't expect somebody, you know, basing their whole career on information that they got during the Cultural Revolution. And, you know, the same thing with him. Um, I, you know, when he came to this country, he he was a huge success. He set up a, a biotech firm and, and became a millionaire. And he loved being a millionaire. <laughs> <laughs> he, he, he was a, a, an excellent capitalist. <laughs> well, and that brings up, you know, the the peeps, the passages I've selected all really focus on climate change. But throughout the whole book, you also are talking a lot about, um, you know, COVID-19 and, and it also looks at the the war in Ukraine. So you're you're weaving all of that into the narrative, too, and frequently pulling in, you know, actual people. Right. It's not these two are not the only ones that you mentioned in the book who are are people who you know have done what you are talking about in the book so right. it's fun to yeah, actually yeah. you know i looked up a, a bunch of names and was like oh yeah this person really is doing this so um it was yeah, fun to read yeah, that yeah. sometimes uh, i changed people's gender and 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 occupations and various things like that to protect the innocent but uh, yeah but for the major <laughs> science you know for some of the the, I, yes, I, the technologies you're discussing these are people who actually have created these technologies and it's 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 pretty exciting to read about their work. Exactly. Um, yeah. Speaking of, there's one more passage that that is a climate solution that I thought was exciting as well. Uh, there's many passages that I thought were exciting, but this one is about um, gasification, but not in the traditional sense that we know of gasification. And you'll have to pardon my French. It's called half-assed. The chapter is called half-assed gasification. Uh, so, you know, throughout the book, you're discussing a lot of these solutions. Um, but in this one, you turn to a solution that I only actually know a little bit about of about called half-assed gasification. Can you explain what that is and why it's relevant? Basically, what they're doing is they're taking uh, the sewage. They're, they're taking... Um, you know, the, the remains of agricultural remains. So they'll take the, you know, the husks of corn after they separate out the grains. And then they, then they cook that uh, at a fairly low temperature to create a biogas. And then what they do is they uh, pipe that uh, to a location where it is then, you know, put down in the ground. So it's sequestered in the ground. So what you're doing is you're sequestering, it's carbon uh, sequestration. Um, and it's, uh, it's, it's relatively cheap uh, and, it's, and it's very effective. Um, 
you know, a, a lot of people are concerned, you, you know, with the idea of a pipeline. Um, that we, we just sort of think of pipelines as, as being bad. Um, I actually, I grew up outside of Boston. Uh, and when I was probably about seven or eight, they put a pipeline in that, you know, from Texas all the way up to Boston. Uh, and it was um, uh, oil that was going to be used uh, for the um, power plants. I think it was the Nut Island power plant in, in Quincy. And um, I was kind of intrigued with this. I mean, it was right in our backyard. Uh, as a matter of fact, my my younger sister and my cousin, who were they were best friends, and they were probably I don't know six or seven, and and they got upset about something, and they decided they were going to run away and go to Texas, and so they they made some sandwiches and they left early in the morning and they started walking down the pipeline to Texas, and. Um, Nobody, this was not the era of, of uh, helicopter parents. Nobody figured out that they were missing until about three o'clock in the afternoon. And they finally decided that they were hungry and they, they came back and, you know, the, the, uh, the police were there and, the, and all the lights were twirling around, uh, but, everything, but everything was okay. But the point of that story is um so that happened you know 50 or 60 years ago i called the town i called the conservation agents and i called the uh the the board of selectmen you know the the and the chairman and i asked them if they had had any trouble with the pipeline over the past 50 or 60 years and they said what pipeline they didn't know that there was a major pipeline running through the through the town uh, that had been quietly, you know, shipping this oil uh, for the past fifty or sixty years. Um, so it's actually the safest way to move a liquid uh, is is by a pipeline. Um, you know, we don't. It's much safer than shipping something on a train or in trucks or anything like that. Uh, you, you know, there's been a lot of opposition, of course, to, to various pipelines, um, because that's a that's sort of a handle uh, that you can make the point that you're trying to stop something. But in fact, that pipeline itself is is um, is, is fairly safe. Yeah, I mean, it's the it's the opposition. Like you said, it's a handle um, and also it's a sign of f- further support for fossil fuels. As our exactly. source of energy, right? So I think that can come, uh, you know, be wrapped into that. Although, sort of in what you're this half-assed gasification, it sounds like perhaps those fossil fuel pipelines could be repurposed to sequester some of this, you know, sort of um, oil gas that is full of carbon. Is that? Yeah, and I, I, I'll tell you another story. Um, I. Actually, when my um, when my when my father was in the army, one of his buddies, one of his army buddies uh, from from Texas, uh, suggested that he you know buy he gets part ownership in a, in an oil well. And when my father was running for office, he had to divest himself of the of the oil well. 
Uh, so he gave it to me and my two sisters. It that it sounds very grand, you know, to have a, an oil well in Texas. It was dribbling out. I think we were getting about twenty-five bucks every three months. Uh, but it was kind of cool, you know. Here was a very tangible investment, and you could think, you know, that your your oil well was chugging away. And of course, this was a, this was at a time when when oil was considered to be a good thing. Um, but anyway, so when we did this, uh, we instantly started getting letters and telephone calls. We even got checks in the mail of people who wanted to uh, buy the buy our, our the oil well. And um, and both my sisters, you know, were paid about five thousand dollars and they sold it and they were very happy. I think my one sister bought a horse and another put an addition on her house. Uh, but I figured these crafty Texans knew something that I didn't know. Uh, so I hung on to it. And um, and finally, you know, I, again, I was getting all kinds of letters and people wanted to buy me. And I finally figured out, oh, what they're doing is they're fracking the well. And uh, or what they're doing is it's what's called unitizing. So rather than you're getting money from each individual well, they unify unify the whole field and then you get a percentage of the uh, of the of you know the, the the oil that's coming out of the field. Uh, so it's kind of a gamble. Um, so anyway, they did this. Uh, and, you know, we, 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 you know, we, we, my sister sold out and I didn't. And then later on, uh, it looked like, um, something was happening again. And I finally figured out, oh, they're going to frack it. So I called up and I said, oh, when are you going to frack my well? And they said, no, 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 we're not fracking it. What we're doing is we're using carbon dioxide. So we're injecting it down into the well. Uh, to force the uh, the oil out, but then we will keep the the carbon dioxide down there. So they were essentially sequestering carbon dioxide. So it's another sort of a half-assed. It's not as good as pulling oxygen out of the air or various things to you know to keep it underground. You could make the argument that this is sort of keeping us. Uh, continuing to, to use petroleum. Um, it, it's kind of a half measure. Um, but at the time it was, uh, I, you know, I think it was a step forward. Um, so I've, 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 you know, I've, I'm still hanging on to that because I want to find out, uh, it's only every two or three years something changes and I get a good story out of it. <laughs> I don't get any money out of it, but I gotta get a good story out of it. <laughs> That's funny. Well, and you know, maybe it's your own sort of little little not climate protest necessarily, but you know, like you you're controlling a little bit of what happens with the fossil fuels. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, and you know, back to that half-assed gasification that you were talking about. Um, you know, uh, why is that process better than the other sequestration? approach you're talking about, which is well, the things that they're doing in Iceland, where they're pulling the carbon dioxide out of the air and then pumping it down? Well, it's uh, it's cheaper, for one thing. Uh, as a matter of fact, yesterday, uh, the Biden administration announced they were going to put $2.1 billion 
uh, in the carbon uh, sequestrant. So they have two major projects where they're going to do that direct carbon capture. Uh, there's one in Louisiana and one in Texas. I was when I first heard about it, I checked quickly to see if it was going to be my well, but, ah. it, but it's not. <laughs> Uh, they're also putting money into uh, what what happened with with my well. I like to call it my well, um, and uh, and that is again this sort of half-ass uh, project where you're putting the carbon dioxide down, but you're still getting the oil out. Um, uh, so it's kind of two steps forward and three steps backward if you if you want to look at it that way. I like to look at it as maybe three steps forward and two steps backwards, but (laughs) (laughs) six, one half dozen, the other kind of, yeah. Um, I mean, it's, it's definitely, um, I think that these solutions for carbon sequestration and bioengineering, which you actually talk about another, um, well, many, one of the solutions you talk about is sort of the bioengineering, putting the, the, um, I think what they're called this, the bubbles out in the sky, um, that was the space bubbles, yeah, yeah. Um, but it's Carlo Razzi, right, from the Sensible Cities Center. Um, you know, so that's an interesting yeah. technology. But as you said, I think the challenges there are: does that make us feel like we can keep pumping fossil fuels into the air? Because hey, we can pull them out, so it's okay, right? So you know, right. yeah. And you know, look at the potential unintended consequences of something like that. It's very interesting. Um, just in the past week, they did do a study that that sort of shows that that's possible in reverse, because uh, part of the reason that the oceans are heating up so quickly is you have what are called ship tracks. Uh, so all the, the 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 ships that are traveling across the oceans uh, have very high amounts of they they formerly had very high amounts of, of uh, sulfur, and that tended to cool the atmosphere. And now they've taken the sulfur out of the, out of the fuels, and um, so it's no longer cooling the atmosphere. And the atmosphere and the ocean is uh, is getting warmer. So in fact, you and we've known this, you know, uh, whenever you have volcanoes, if you have a high sulfur content, it will cool the earth. And if you have a high carbon dioxide content, it's going to increase uh, the, 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 you know, the, uh, the heat of the earth. Right. Yeah. So it's, it's you know, it, it's tempting to say, so we should just put more, more sulfur into the air, right? That's, you know, what seeding the clouds does. But um, again, there are so many challenges with that. For example, as soon as we stop putting the sulfur in the air, the parts per million of carbon dioxide is still there and all of the issues come back. Right. So if exactly, you know, yeah. it creates a lot of follow on challenges. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, well, um, and, 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 and a lot of these solutions is sort of doing more and more and more and more engineering and spending more money. And, you know, I'm of the old school that says you should do less and less. Uh, you know, you, you know, you have to have much more population control. People have to consume less. Uh, we have to fly less. We have to have fewer babies. All those things that are sort of part of human nature. Everybody likes to have, have babies. 
uh, and everybody likes to, you know, go fast and, you know, have fast cars and, and fly. Um, but, uh, you know, we also have to control ourselves a little bit. Yeah. And there are so many elegant solutions out there that incorporate, you know, sort of ecosystem services, like we've been talking about, where you have a setup like a national seashore or barrier islands, where not only is it going to address a lot of the problems with climate, but it actually creates, you know, it can create economic gain as well. And, you know, thinking, moving towards those kinds of ideas and solutions seems far preferable to dumping a bunch of money into sending stuff up in the atmosphere to try and tamper with the physics of the planet. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, this has been fascinating. Um, there's so much more we could talk about, but I just wanted to, you know, leave it with you. Is there anything else that we haven't covered that you wanted to make sure we cover before we move on? Um, no, I think we've we've uh, covered everything pretty well. <laughs> there's there's the, I mean, in the, in both of in all of your books, you really touch on a, a myriad of compelling ideas. So um, it's been it's been I, great. I, I will. I will mention one thing and sort of adding on what you were saying about uh, trying to do things to encourage uh, the the world to do the right thing, if you will. And um, I was just reading a book and it's by a biologist called uh, Chris Thomas. And he was saying, you know, we're we're a little bit too concerned about invasive species. Uh, and that he's saying really what we should be doing is figuring out the species that are good for the environment and making it easier for those species to get where they want to go. In other words, so if you have these wildlife corridors, uh, as the earth is heating up, uh, animals can start moving north and plants can start moving north, even trees gradually uh, move north. And we're you know, we've seen that with all kinds of species where, you know, particularly birds. Um, I think we all remember birds that, uh, you know, that, that we didn't see as a kid. And now you're seeing cardinals up here and, and uh, all sorts of things. And now we're seeing tarpon in the ocean, for gosh sakes. <laughs> yeah. 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 yeah, I mean, there's um, a fishery scientist named David Polly who talks about this idea of shifting baseline syndrome, where slowly what, you know, this sort of the shifted perception for what is is what normal is is kind of understood to be something new um and right. it's not always a good thing right you know you start to sort of just the baseline becomes yes we have lots of wildfires every year right um and, and that can kind of work against climate action um but there are some things that maybe we just sort of have to to understand okay this is this is the new normal how do we sort of work with that right um but yeah that sounds like it's a, a great book and say the author again was chris uh chris thomas chris he's thomas. Uh, from uh, i believe he's from oxford excellent um that's great or the university of york maybe okay yeah. Um, well, Bill, this has been a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for joining me. Um, and dear listeners, I highly recommend William Sargent's latest book, Backstory, Journalists Off the Record, as well as 
his 28 other books. There's so, so many phenomenal topics out there. Um, World on Edge is wonderful. I'm working on reading Crab Wars, which is also fascinating about horseshoe crabs. Um, you can find his books at bookstores. Um, and also we'll put a link to Backstory. It's on Amazon. We'll put a link to that in our show notes as well. Um, so you can check out links to most of what we discussed here at our blog. The, to find the blog, Google Mass Climate Action, Action Network or type in massclimateaction.org. If you have comments or show ideas, please send an email to podcast at massclimateaction.net. What's good? What's bad? What should we talk more about? What should we talk less about? Uh, you can listen directly to this podcast on your smartphone using Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Overcast, Podbean, SoundCloud, and other directories. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts by searching for Massachusetts Climate, Climate Action. I want to give a quick thank you to Dr. Tucker, who is constantly supporting us with ongoing research about climate issues. And I want to close by saying that because we recognize the necessity of personal accountability for our actions, because we accept responsibility for building a durable future, and because we believe it is our patriotic duty as citizens to speak out, we must insist the United States transform its energy sector over the next decade under a just and equitable plan that uses regulations, investments, and a price on carbon that respects environmental justice communities. So thanks so Amen. much. For, that's right. <laughs> thanks so much for being here, Bill. And thanks to everyone for listening. Thank you very much, Maria. It's been, it's been a lot of fun. <laughs> we'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Very cool. <laughs>